Um, I don't know how much of you or uh, how many of you or if any of you actually follow world news events. I'm going to assume some of you do. Um, but if you don't, this is one that crossed over my Google News feed this last week. Uh, it has to do with the fact that the UN finished up their climate change conference. It's something that they do uh, annually. And uh, whether this interests you or not, I, it's something that could have an impact on us here living in the United States, maybe, maybe not. The point is, is that these four outcomes came out of this recent conference. There was a, a dispute or, or maybe not full agreement on uh, the effects of fossil fuel on our planet. You can see some of the others. The fourth one is interesting, glo uh, global finance unsupportive of renewables, renewable energy. Uh, basically right now 82% of the energy that's produced in this world comes from fossil fuels. And they want to transition of course into the renewable type of fuels. And one of the conclusions was the, the countries that need to do this most, uh, the ones that probably do the most polluting are the ones that can afford to do this uh, the least and so they're trying to figure out ways to to help do this along at any rate what came out is this non-binding resolution I don't know if you heard about this or not uh, But by 2050 they hope to phase out all use of, of fossil fuels Now I know people fall on uh, both sides of this issue um, And I don't consider it my place to tell you how to think about climate change What I do know is this um, God tells us to be good stewards of everything he's given us including planet earth and how you determine your part in that, I think you're all big enough, smart enough to figure out your place according to God's will. So I'm not going to dictate and say you should do this or, or you should do that. The reason I started with this is because there's something that is always part of this conversation that personally bothers me. And it has to do with the fact that uh, a lot of times the discussion goes in one direction, thinking that we human beings somehow, and I'm not saying we disregard uh, good stewardship principles of, of, of taking care of this planet. I don't suggest you change your oil and, and pour it down the, the drain or on your lawn, things like that. But on the other hand, I fully am aware, and I, I hope you are too, that we human beings do not influence when this world ends. A case in point, there have been predictions after predictions of the end of this world, these doomsday predictions. And depending upon your age, you have probably heard uh, any number of these. There was a similar resolution a long time ago, but when I was young, and yeah, that's a long time ago, it wasn't global warming, it was global cooling. And they don't seem to be able to make up their mind about what really is the biggest problem of all. Of course, when it was Y2K, everybody was freaking out. Planes are going to fall out of sky. The world's going to end. The Mayan calendar in 2012, I'm, I'm, I'm sure many of you heard of that. And the most recent one probably had to do with the pandemic. Uh, a lot of people were really frightened, thinking this is God punishing us. This is the end. What I want to share with you next are what I found this neat video. There are, there are top five scientific beliefs or theories as to how this world will end. And I want, I want you to just listen carefully and see if there's something that is consistent that comes through every single one of these. It's the basis behind many disaster movies, but scientists are legitimately worried that a space rock could wipe out Earth. A meteorite probably doomed the dinosaurs, and in the Tugnuska event, a massive meteorite damaged about 770 square miles of the Siberian forest in 1908. Even more frightening, perhaps, is that astronomers only know about a fraction of the space rocks lurking in our solar system. The fear of an overpopulated globe has been around since the 18th century, when Thomas Malthus predicted that population growth would cause mass starvation and overtax the planet. With the global population at 7 billion and counting, many conservationists think that population growth is one of the key threats to the planet. 
Of course not everybody agrees. Many think population growth will stabilise in the next 50 years, and that humanity will innovate its way through the negative consequences of the overcrowding that has occurred. Many scientists are still worried about the classic end of the world threat, global nuclear war. Massive stockpiles of nuclear weapons around the globe could wreak destruction if they were to get into the wrong hands. Last year, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, a non-technical magazine on global security founded in 1945 by a former Manhattan Project physicist, moved the Doomsday Clock to 5 minutes to midnight. The Doomsday Clock shows how close humanity is to destruction by nuclear or biological weapons or global climate change. The mother of all apocalyptic fears, climate change, is said by many scientists to be the biggest threat facing the planet. Climate change could make extreme weather more severe, increase droughts in some areas, Though each of these scenarios could happen, most scientists think that a snowball effect of multiple events is most likely to be the cause of our planet's destruction. For instance, global warming could increase the prevalence of pathogens whilst also causing widespread shifts in climate. Meanwhile, ecosystem collapse could make it slightly harder to produce food, with no bees to pollinate crops, or trees to filter agricultural water. So instead of an epic catastrophe, several relatively small factors might slightly worsen life on Earth until it gradually falls apart. So those are the top scientific theories about the end of the world. Um, quick list there. Uh, I'm going to add one to that, and it's a less scientific theory. It's more of a science fiction theory. Uh, and that's some people believe that the world will end when we're invaded by aliens and they choose to destroy us. Um, I'm not even going to go down that road other than to suggest that's one of the reasons why I think uh, there's been a lot more discussion about UFOs and what the government may or, or may not be telling us about UFOs, and everything obviously leads into some conspiracy theory. And it all gets back to something that I, I wonder if you did catch it with, with each of these. You kept hearing words like fear, afraid, worried, the anxiety. And, and that seems to be the general sense when people discuss the end and the end of this planet, the end of this world, end uh, of life as we know it. And so what concerns me is, and of course I know where all of these answers come from, but the reality is, is why doesn't anybody ever stop and suggest, hey, maybe we should ask God about this. Uh, since he's the creator of the heavens and the earth, he also tells us he is the one who will end the heavens and the earth. And of course, non-religious people, non-Christian people aren't going to go down that road, but you and I both know that when God makes a promise, when he declares something in his word, there's no way it's not going to happen. And so it's valuable for us, considering this year's Advent focus of not the first Advent as much as the second Advent of our Savior, that we wrestle with some of these questions and inform ourselves. And interestingly enough, each and every time we look at one of these lessons, what we find in them is not only the assurance that we have nothing to fear, but the Lord actually tells us what he would have us be doing up until the end. He doesn't want us just to be idle or absent in other people's lives. In this lesson, Peter tells us God has a plan for us leading up till the end. The words where we find our answer about the end come from Peter's second letter, third chapter. Peter writes, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire, and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness.
So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. All right, you can already tell this, this is some pretty heavy stuff. So it's probably good if we just take a moment, kind of catch our breath, and figure out why did God choose Peter of all people to write these things? And the curiosity I always have is why did he choose Peter to write these things when he did, because it was probably written in 67 AD, so it's within that first century. Some of those answers are given to us directly from Peter's letters. He wrote First and Second Peter both, and we're told he wrote them to the same group of people, the churches in Asia Minor. So first century Christians in these congregations who didn't have the completed Bible that we have had lots of questions, and of course, given the day and the age, had lots of concerns and so oftentimes God would directly answer those questions through one of the apostles. How Peter came to be supervising these churches is the fact that three years earlier, the apostle Paul was executed, and so the supervision of those churches was then handed off to Peter. As we dig through the second letter which Peter writes, we quickly realize Peter is most likely in the city of Rome, probably in prison, and he literally tells those people he fully expects that his own execution was just a very short time away. So his supervisory efforts in taking care of these people he cared about very much was going to come to an end, eventually transition to the Apostle John, but in the meantime, he wants them to have the same blessed assurance, confidence, and calmness that he had even facing his own end. There's something else that we need to understand, and why would God have Peter write two letters? Uh, and whenever you have these multiple epistles, it, this is always a question that I think we need to address. And with Peter, it might be one of the easiest ones to answer that question. In the first letter, he addresses dangers and challenges that was going to confront the visible church. And he explains those are going to come from the outside world. Well, of course, given the date that I just told you, the Roman Empire was now in charge of the land of Israel and many surrounding areas. And much like we're witnessing even within the bounds of our own country and of this world, the culture is on this sharp downhill slide. Things which were once considered unacceptable and absurd were co becoming common and ordinary. The other thing is, is that by giving you that date, what I do for you is I put the writing of these letters squarely in the time when Nero was the emperor of the Roman Empire, and if you know your ancient history at all, Nero was the very first Roman emperor to actually make Christianity illegal, and he started the first Roman persecution against Christians. So if you care a lot about the people that you're given charge to take care of, obviously the Holy Spirit is Peter warning them and preparing them. Which leads us then into the letter we're studying today in the second of these two. It's very similar, except now Peter's addressing the dangers and the things that these Christians needed to guard against that were going to be coming at them from inside the visible church. Two primarily. One is he says there's going to be false teachers which rise up and will be teaching things that are not according to Scripture and certainly against what our Lord taught. And then the other one, which is very much primary to what we're talking about today, there would be groups of people within the church itself who would not only doubt Jesus' promise to return, but would actually start to mock it and actually scoff it, meaning there's no way. You heard that in the epistle lesson. They suggest that because life just goes on day after day, that we don't have to worry about the end. Let's just milk as much as we can out of our daily living and don't even worry about tomorrow or what comes next. And so it's interesting for us to see how Peter begins this. He takes them right to 
the end. But he does it in a strange way. He talks about the first event of Judgment Day, and then he leaps over to the last event of Judgment Day. And so there's a lot in there. Now he's got the assumption, he works with these people, they're fully cognizant, they know what the events of Judgment Day are, so he doesn't see any need to repeat them. For our benefit this morning, and for our sake, and because it fits so well into our Advent study, uh, we will review those, uh, the events of Judgment Day in just a few moments. But there's some things that we have to get straight in our own head. And I've had this discussion with uh, various people. And as you start to explain these things, it, it doesn't make much sense until you actually, if you will, draw some lines around this discussion. So there are certain principles and concepts that we just take as part of everyday life that we have to be willing and ready to let go of in a Judgment Day discussion. Part of that, and uh, the book of Revelation can be pretty tricky, and I've heard a lot of people just rip it up and misuse it. If you understand it correctly and you put it in the context of all the scripture, there's some very useful information. And if you read it properly, the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, was written to give us assurance and the same confidence and hope that Peter's trying to write. Well, if you do the language work correctly, what you come up with is in chapter 10, uh, Jesus is telling us through John that time itself is going to end. Come judgment day, you will no longer have your life ruled by a clock or by a calendar. And that might frighten you a little bit, but I'm going to be honest, I can't wait for that day. Uh, we are such slaves of time, and that's how we tend to live our lives, unfortunately, because it causes us to lose sense of eternity. The other thing, and that goes back to chapter one, is the confines of space, as we know it, will also come to an end. Uh, that's the only way to explain that. When Jesus does visibly return, it doesn't matter where you're going to be at on planet Earth. Everybody will be able to see him. So certain things where I can't look around the corner of the building, those things just simply stop to be come judgment day. All right, I'm going to just let you let that sink in a little bit because now we're going to get a little bit deeper in the weeds on some of this because there's some other concepts that we need to understand that will end and some that will continue on. I'm not going to try and get too overly technical here, and I'm not a great scientist, but let me explain it this way. There are certain things, certain principles, certain laws that God built into this amazing and beautiful creation. And what Scripture teaches us is some of those laws will continue on into eternity. God created them with a beginning, and they will have no end, much like our own presence. Then there's others that he created that will cease to exist because they will not serve any purpose into eternity. There's three that are primary to our lesson today is what's known as the law of mutual attraction. And I think sometimes we get this backwards. Some dude just figured this out. He discovered this and it becomes his law or whatever. These are things God created that over time human beings uncovered. And as the universe and the origins of life were being discussed and studied uh, without fully acknowledging the existence of God, they come to some realization there are some design features in life itself that are undeniable and in my mind simply point us back to God. One of those that will continue on is the law of mutual attraction, meaning that in eternity matter will still exist. Atoms won't simply fly apart, and part of this we know is because of the physical resurrection, which leads us into the second one, the law of definite proportions. Boy, I'm really making you stretch back to your high school, maybe your college days. What class was that that we discussed that? And, and you don't really need to remember all of it. There's just one specific point. It means things are what they are. So it's included for this state of purpose because one of the events of Judgment Day is the resurrection of the dead. 
And it is comforting us to know, and Job speaks to this, I will see the Lord with my own eyes. He's acknowledging the fact of this law. You won't get somebody else's body come resurrection day. Like I can trade this one in for a better model. God basically says you are who you are. And you should be assured that when I raise you back to life, it will be you. You won't be half dog and half human. You will be you. Which leads us then finally to this third one, the law of conservation of matter. And that's the one I really wanted to get to. And I won't go into great detail here, uh, but it will have an application this morning. And you probably know it as a matter can neither be created nor destroyed. Uh, and even God himself acknowledges that in the book of Exodus. Once he was done creating, that's what he created. And everything that has existed or been made since then has gone back to the original creation. Again, another amazing testimony of our creator, God. All right, there's one other thing that I want you to understand now as we review the list of the end. That while time and space cease to exist, that doesn't mean that there aren't elements like sequ sequences. Some of these things will happen one after another. But I don't want you to start thinking, okay, 10 a.m. on Judgment Day, we all got to show up. And by 11 o'clock, we should be done. The party should start around noon because that's how we think now. God says, don't, don't think that way. Uh, there, this is going to happen according to a clock. Time won't mean anything to you then, and thank God it won't. But some events necessarily have to happen one after another. That said, there's also things that are going to happen simultaneously. That as one event is taking place, another event is already beginning and sometimes even being completed while that previous event is happening. Hopefully this will make sense now as we work through this list of nine separate things that take place on Judgment Day. The first one was actually the beginning of our Advent study, that Jesus will visibly come again. And part of what we've discussed with that, and hopefully it's common knowledge to you, that the Lord comes back in a visible form, and we heard that, and that's why Ascension Day is important on one level, because he's, uh, the angel said the same way you saw him go, he's going to come back. And it's interesting that that message was delivered by angels because they will be accompanying our Lord when he returns. Along with that, and if you look to point two, and this is as part of what Paul says to the Thessalonians, when the Lord comes back with the angels, what he will be bringing with him are the souls of all of those Christians that have previously died. They were buried, and now their souls are with the Lord. At the same time, and this is one of those simultaneous events, as he's returning, the resurrection begins. And with the resurrection itself, there is a sequence Paul says, first, those who believed in Jesus, their bodies will be raised. And then sometime later on, without giving too much detail, obviously then the bodies of the non-Christians will be raised. Along with this event, what we have, and I think sometimes this is a spot that we don't talk about enough. As we're being raised, our bodies are being glorified and perfected. And Paul talks about that at great length to the Corinthians. It was sown imperishable. Uh, I'm sorry, it was sown perishable. It is raised imperishable. So what we were when our bodies were placed within the ground comes back, that uh, saving of matter, but now it's perfected and glorified. Now that would also suggest that when the unbelievers, the non-Christians are raised, their bodies, of course, are not glorified. There's no reason for that to happen. The fifth event is what our lesson was last week, uh, the separation, the judgment. And sometimes I think that, even amongst Christians, can, can cause some at least concern. And one of the things that we talked about at length was the fact that Judgment Day and all of the prophecies we have about it were never meant to cause fear. Uh, in fact, one of the ways that I have explained it, it's kind of like that sentencing date after a trial. Uh, when you're innocent, you don't have that. When you're guilty, you are. But it's a verdict that's already been stated. 
Uh, uh, you think of the passages that Paul talks. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, have been brought from death to life. This is a state in which we already are living. Rescued, saved, sanctified, and on our way to our eternal home of heaven. What Judgment Day actually is, is the public acknowledgement of what is already true. It isn't meant to cause fear for Christians, but it certainly causes fear for those who have never placed their faith in Christ. After the judgment, the public declaration is this interesting event that probably might be the most misunderstood or confused uh, thing of of Judgment Day is is the rapture. And I know we Lutherans don't typically like to use that term, but that's what this harpazo metha actually means. What it's talking about is the souls that were brought back and reunited with their bodies are gathered with those who are still alive when Jesus returns up in the heavens. And the reason why Paul told the, Thess- uh, the Thessalonians about this is because they had this false idea Jesus was going to return very quickly before any of them died. And so one of some of the congregation members started to die. They were, they were getting concerned. What about them? And so in their own minds, and again, they were looking at this, not recognizing the concepts that would fall away and the ones that would continue, they were worried that the people who didn't remain alive until Jesus returned would somehow be second class on Judgment Day. And and Paul says that's that's not at all what it is. This is not a pre-Judgment Day event like so many religions teach. This is part of Judgment Day. And basically it's like having a party and you send out all the invitations, everybody gets it, everybody shows up, and together, whether you were alive or whether you were resurrected on Judgment Day, together we all proceed to heaven and that's when the celebration really begins. Of course there's the other side of that too for those who didn't trust what Christ did for them, living under God's law perfectly, and then sacrificing himself to make payment for all sin, for those who didn't trust that, for those who thought God was lying, for those who doubted and thought Jesus could never do this, unfortunately, they will be sent to hell where they will live forever. And then the last event of Judgment Day is our lesson. What happens to planet Earth? And this too is where a lot of confusion exists. And so before we actually kind of unwind what Peter says, I need to warn you about two things. You see, Peter's prophecy of false teachers arising has very much come true. And it's not just a first century issue, it's a 21st century issue. There are two false beliefs or theories about what happens to planet Earth. The first is what's known as the annihilation theory, where basically everything you see, everything that's in existence now, other than us human beings, will be completely destroyed and taken out of existence. That is not what scripture teaches. On the other end of the spectrum, the other false theory is what's known as the new earth theory. That God will destroy everything and then he will recreate it. And this is where the Greek language and the grammar is so vitally useful. There's two different words for new. And if that's what God was talking about, if that's what Peter was talking about, it would have used the other word for new, like out of nothing. And that's not at all what Peter's talking about. And remember, we have this conservation of matter principle that continues on into eternity. And now with that all said, we can figure out what it is that God is trying to tell us through Peter. Well, there's three really phrases or words that describe this. 
And we have to understand these words so that we understand what happens at the end. This first phrase, the heavens will disappear. There you see the word. And its most literal meaning is to perish or go away. But you can't think of it as being completely destroyed or never again to be seen. The word itself, when you get down to the root concept, talks about a transformation. It's like describing coming, standing here, and now I'm over here. There's a change. It's not the same. It's different. It's been transformed. The second word also kind of, where he talks about the elements being destroyed by fire. And what the main word is, is talking about an orderly arrangement. Basically, it's talking about our way of life. God says, I'm going to completely destroy your way of life, what you know to be true day to day, and I'm going to actually change that into something else. It will dissolve away. We're going to loosen the rules for how you live, if you will. So we continue on living, and we continue on living with whatever's left over, but it won't be the same as we do now. And then this third phrase, the earth and everything in it will be laid bare, is very intriguing. Uh, I'm going to contend that the word earth is a mistranslation because the word that is actually used refers to the land portions of the earth. And what Peter is describing is actually saying uh, everything solid on earth will be burned up so that what's left are ashes. It's interesting that God never actually tells us what he will do with the waters. And if you uh, remember what I read for you from the epistle lesson, God speaks at length about how he uses water. It will become a part of this transformational process. Uh, And here's what God actually does. He never says then, okay, you've got these base elements left over, and then he goes quiet. He doesn't tell us how this will work, what he's going to do with them. I have my own personal theory Um, And I know it's probably not right, but I could see the Lord taking all these leftover elements, taking his big almighty hands, packing them down into a little tiny globe in the middle of heaven, putting them under glass so every day of eternity we can walk by and go, I used to live there. Not anymore. Look around. This is amazing. So I could see him using the earth and its leftovers, if you will, somehow to just remind us how blessed we are into eternity. At which point you're probably thinking to yourself, what are you really talking about? This is maybe the best way and the best illustration. Because what is will not be. But it won't go away. It'll be transformed. If I took a piece of paper and light it on fire, it doesn't cease to exist. The matter's transformed. It doesn't look the same. It doesn't serve the same function. What you're left with are ashes. All of the molecules are still there. They've just been changed into a new form. That might be the best way to understand this conservation of matter and what God plans to do at the end. And so understanding that, it's pretty clear. Peter's not writing these things to freak us out. He's writing these things to let us know God's got this. He's got this all figured out. Much like the plan of salvation, God's got a plan for judgment and what comes after. And instead of fearing like the rest of the world, Christians have this secure knowledge that what God tells us is always true and what God has always done for his creation is not destroy it, but to transform it. In the same way Christ came the first time to transform each and every one of us by paying for our sins, he promises to transform all of us and this world to serve his eternal purposes. At which point you're probably sitting there and go, this is great information. I've never had the to-do list for Judgment Day. But then you get to that point after processing the information in your head, you're going, so what? What kind of effect does this have on me tomorrow? You've got to get up, go to school, go to work. So what? 
What about the end of the world? Sure, God's got it all figured out. How does that change my life right here and right now? Remember, Peter was writing this to people whose lives were pretty much at the bottom of the valley. How could these things change the way that they thought? Or the things that maybe gave them comfort and confidence? Well, don't forget, Peter warned about those who would rise up and who would say, the promise to come again, it's a big lie. If you ever lose sight of the fact that our Lord has not only made a promise to rescue us, but to come again and take us out of this place from which he's rescued, the kind of life from which he's rescued, we have to again and again remind ourselves that when God speaks, it happens. So I don't care what happens to you tomorrow, how good or how bad it is, you've got the Lord walking with you every step of the way, taking care of you in this life, so that ultimately he can take you by the hand and lead you into the next life. If that doesn't get you through the day, I don't know what will. If that doesn't make you look at even the most difficult situations that we face here on earth and recognize the fact that this God who says he's going to come again, and I believe it, when he turns to me and says, you know what? That's no big deal. I don't break a sweat over that. I got it. I got a plan. But you have a part in that plan. And this is all I'm asking you to do. Christians, trust me. Trust me. Because I'm almighty God. I made this earth. And I'm going to end this earth. And I take care of every single day between those two events. There's one other thing that we should understand. This was not just a first century problem. Do you understand what Peter is saying? That Christians are to have more influence on the culture than the culture is to have influence over Christians. I want you to stop and think about this. How many people do you know that doubt there's going to be a good end to this world? How many people do you know that think after their life ends or after this world ends, that's it. There's nothing more. There's no more to it the kind of delusion by which they live their lives. And how often do we stop and think, you know what? I've got the truth. I know the answers. Now, can I find it within myself, the courage and the love to sit down with my friend, with my neighbor, with my cousin, with my brother, and actually tell them the good news that Jesus didn't just come the first time. And thank God he did. But he's coming a second time. Do we allow our hearts and our minds to be ruled the way the rest of this world, that as we consider the end, we're filled with fear and anxiety? Or do we know that the Almighty God walks with us every step of the way? What does it mean to be afraid? To be filled with fear, to be filled with apprehension. What does it mean to be afraid? We live in a world of cool. We want the best things, the newest toys, whatever is hot. So we trade our time, we trade our experiences, we trade our individual talents to acquire what is cool. But instead, we have lost what has brought us joy. We have lost our uniqueness. We have lost that spirit that lives inside of us, that thing that makes us different. So why do we conform? We dream big dreams, yet we do not step beyond our front door. Why? Because it's hard. The road of God is hard. You will be uncomfortable, but you will have the opportunity for joy. 
You will be uneasy, but you will be reliant on him. You will feel pain, but you will delight in his pleasure. You will be pushed to your utmost, but you can soar to your highest. So as you go to your job, your school, your neighborhood, why do you hide that which is important to you? Are you worried about the world and how they will see you as a dope, as a nut job, as an unscientific fool, as a hypocrite? Do you even care enough about those in your life? Do you care enough about the guy in the cubicle next to you? Do you care enough about the person next door? Do you care enough about the single mom that needs your help? Do you care enough? Do you care enough? Jesus does. Jesus does. A generous heart is never foolish. Jesus came into this world and he healed the sick. Jesus came into this world and he gave people food to eat. Jesus came into this world and gave people life. Jesus came into this world and gave each of us hope. And what did we do? In this world, Jesus was mocked. In this world, Jesus was rejected. In this world, Jesus was derided. If we are to emulate Jesus, then we will give and give and give and receive nothing in return but hatred and scorn. Jesus came and lifted all of our pain, all of our sin on his back, and he faced death so that we would never have to. He faced death so that we would never die. In this world, we will have sorrow, we will have pain, but in Jesus, we are eternally indestructible. Eternally, we will have joy in peace, in love, not in hope of a better tomorrow, but beyond hope in the presence of God Almighty. Can you dream of possibilities? Can you dream of opportunities? Can you cast a vision for a better world, city, neighborhood, church? Even you, can you trust the Almighty God? So now that we're clear on what the end is, probably more than you even wanted to know today, now our marching orders. What do we do with this information? How does this touch us and change our lives? And, and Peter really has a twofold message here. Um, first of all, it says th there's a spirit, there's an attitude, uh, there's a way in which Christians, you can now live your lives. And, and I think there's sometimes confusion about what we're supposed to be doing until the end. And one is, is you're supposed to be anticipating and excited. Uh, the word that he uses to talk about this, he actually uses twice. The best illustration might be your children on Christmas when they are about ready to open presents. Um, they're so excited. They're hoping they got, you, got, you got them what they wanted, um, but they might be surprised too. Uh, the box is still not open, but it's sitting there and they can hardly wait. That's our attitude about the end. Um, Peter says this is how we should look forward to it, not fear it, but, but in excitedly anticipate it. There's one phrase I want to spend just a, a tiny bit of time with because I think the translation sometimes confuses us. Uh, speed, it's coming. It is not saying that we Christians, by living the way in which God says we should live, have any influence over the last day as far as when it will come. It's actually kind of misleading. It's actually another form of this excitement, this anticipation. These are all positive terms that we shouldn't be dreading the end, but we should be welcoming it, that we should be looking forward to it, not just because it transitions us from this life, but it finally gives us the life that God always created us to enjoy. 
And the only way that was possible is because Christ came to give us that life back. There's something else too, and it all hinges on this word promise. And, and I think that's why it's important that we constantly remind ourselves this when we go through our Advent studies. And I know this year we focus more on the second coming because it's been a while since we've done it. But you cannot study, you cannot talk about, you cannot celebrate one Advent of our Lord without celebrating every Advent of our Lord. And, and that's an important lesson because the reverse is also true. When I talked about those people in your lives who don't know or don't believe Jesus' return, you cannot deny one coming of our Lord without denying all comings of our Lord. And that puts them in a very dangerous place. And it reminds us of the opportunities that we have and, and the urgency. Because God has not only made us stewards of this planet, he's made us stewards of the time that he gives us on this planet. And the Lord would have us remember that along with fighting the both the fear that the world embraces because it doesn't have a clue about how this world ends and all of the lies that it tells that somehow human beings are ultimately in control when they forget about how God called from nothing everything into existence. He's the same almighty God that can also finally uh, come and say, now the time has come when this world needs to end and that you will finally get to enjoy the eternity for which I created you. It's true. Today we're one day closer to the end than we were yesterday. And tomorrow, if the world's still spinning, we'll be one day closer than that. But rather than send you out into this cold and cruel world with all of its challenges and troubles, thinking maybe the same thoughts that this world is thinking and being filled with fear and anxiety, what I'd like to do is send you home today with a, a message of comfort that every single thing we've discussed this morning fully depends on God's promises. And I had as a gospel lesson that one promise that I think we all know, but too quickly forget. That Jesus promised us not only that he would be with us on that last day, but that he would be with us every day until then. He does not choose to leave us, even in those moments when sometimes, unfortunately, we might walk away from him. And you know others that have done the very same thing. And so let Peter's marching orders be a lesson to us as well, that God has given us the opportunity to share with others the truth. And you have that opportunity now as we prepare to celebrate the first coming of our Savior. Let people know how their life can change. And don't forget to tell them what changes I have been with you from the beginning. When I created you to be my children, to walk with me hand in hand, to bring order and beauty to this world. But you chose another way. You turned against me and you turned against each other, falling into wickedness so vile that it grieved me to my core. I looked on what my creation had become and wept. I chose to wipe the slate clean, to wash away all that I had created. All, that is, but one family. Hope remained. I was coming. 
I chose a people, Israel, to be my own. Through them, the whole world would know me. When they were enslaved, I delivered them, showing the nations my power. I gave them a home, made them a promise, that through them salvation would come, but they would not follow me. Like generations before, they worshipped false gods. Though prophets warned them, they refused to listen. They refused to trust me. So I scattered them. Then empires arose. Cruelty and oppression reigned. And though my people were crushed beneath their feet, I did not forget them. I did not forget my promise. In that dark hour, when all seemed lost, a still small voice cried out, and that's when everything changed.